0: We'll see on the service booklet there in that outline, we're starting with this question. Why would we want patience? Like, why would we even want it? I, I don't know about you exactly, and we can talk more over morning tea if you'd love to talk about this, but my patience is wearing thin. Over the last couple of years, the last few months, I, I felt my patience just wearing thin. To a point where it feels like there's not much left. I'm at the point of running out. So how is your patience? Is your patience thick? Is it strong? Is it, is it durable? Would you like some more? I would. This pandemic and a multitude of overwhelming forces and factors are producing, I think unseen before patience we're seeing an impatience in our society an impatience among people where patience is wearing thin and even God's people Christians are just lashing out in impatience everywhere and therefore friends I think that we are in the perfect season for producing this fruit of the spirit uh, we preach through books of the Bible and we've, we've, we've been in the book of Job earlier in the year. First before that was 1 Peter. Uh, then we moved through and uh, we spent time in 1 Thessalonians looking at church culture. And we could have, as we come to the end of the year, because the year is fast becoming over, we could have said, well, let's, what's the next book? And we thought, well, actually, what do we need? What, what does our church need? But what is our... City, or region need, what does our society need? And I think we need the fruit of the Spirit. As a saying in agriculture that if you want to grow some things, yes, you need lots of fertiliser, but actually some things you want to grow and you actually want the ground to be a bit harder, the ground to be a bit less nutrient-rich. You don't want necessarily easy seasons for some things to grow well. For example, wool. If you want to grow fine wool, you don't want rich ground. You want it to be a little bit harder, otherwise, the wool blows out. It becomes too thick and it's micron. Sometimes, when you want to grow a vine, you don't want the vine to be established in easy growing conditions because it won't put down roots, it won't grow vigorously. And, friends, it's the same with the fruit of the Spirit. We are in the perfect season for producing love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. All those things that we need to produce because the season is hard. The ground is hard. And for our hearts, this is the perfect season for us to be in a series and thinking about, are we producing this fruit in such hard times? Anyone can produce patience when things are going well. Anyone can be peaceable. Anyone can be loving. Anyone can have joy when your circumstances are going well for you. Anyone can have all those things. I've got a holiday coming up. I've got a life is. Well, I've got a job, got my salary coming in, buying the stuff I want. Anyone can have any one of those things when life and circumstances are good for you. But it's when life gets hard, that's when producing this fruit becomes real. And of all the fruit all the fruits, I think patience is one of those ones we just see less and less of in our society and in us, in me. And maybe if you know me well enough, you've seen it. This morning we had some significant sound issues here. It would have been easy for us to lose patience. And you may have noticed, and we had to kind of sort things out, and even the keyboard and the, the guitar and the piano, is all that working. Even now we've had to work and see the, the fruit of patience grow. Of all the fruits, I think patience, classically, there's nine fruits you see in Galatians. Uh, Galatians 5, we had a call to worship, those nine fruits. Of all the fruits, I think patience is one that lends itself most to the most classic funny memes. So uh, you only have to do this you know, very quick cursory kind of typing into Google and you can find some funny memes about patience. I did this. Uh, one of the most classic ones you remember, of course, you, you perhaps have seen this before, is is there's a skeleton sitting on a park bench and there's a caption that says, I'm still waiting for patience. And these memes resonate with us and we kind of chuckle inside because we go, I know what this is like. This is me. This might be you. Um, Another one says, patience, I don't have time for that. Um, Or or this this third one, uh, Lord, bless me with patience, not for opportunities to be patient. I've had plenty of those. They don't seem to be working. Just bless me with patience. And my favourite in COVID season... I had my patience tested, and I'm negative. What is patience? As we heard in the kids' talk, patience, it can be seen as really trusting God's timing. What is patience? Well, you kind of like we saw last week, we asked what is peace? And I asked my five-year-old what is, what is peace, and he said at the dinner table straight away, not fighting. Five-year-olds can get it, right? Even grown-ups can therefore get it. So grown-ups, what is patience? Well, we know it's the opposite of impatience, don't we? What is impatience? You see, whilst we know what it is, I guarantee you know what it feels like. Do you know what impatience feels like? It feels like a welling up inside of frustration until it overflows in words or actions. You feel it, don't you? You're, just, you're, you're not getting what you want, it's not going your way and you feel it particularly and you often feel impatience, maybe with a thing, but most likely with a person. And so patience is really a heart condition. Because impatience is the negative heart condition. Patience is a character condition. We know what it feels like and now we know what it means to say, I've been impatient, I need to be patient. But why would you want to be? Why not continue on in life with impatience? Why bother with this half hour moment of looking into the Bible and seeing what patience is? Why would we want to be patient in the first place? Because impatience leads to imploding, leads to such a selfishness that will actually swallow your life. That's why. Let me say that again. Impatience, you know, we often think impatience leads to exploding. Well, it might. Words come out, but often impatience can lead to an ongoing, incremental, Gradual imploding, where we just focus so much on self and so much on me and my frustrations that you don't meet my expectations, that we implode on ourselves until we become a ball of bitterness. That's where impatience leads to. So, why would we want patience? Because God has made us to be not a ball of bitterness, God has made us to enjoy Him to enjoy life, to glorify him, and that is something that we look at patience and think, well, I want that fruit in my life. I need that fruit in my life, especially now. And the first thing that God says in his word, as James pens these words, is an imperative. Look at verse 7. Be patient therefore, brothers and sisters. Be patient. Now, an imperative is a command, it's a doing word, it's a verb. It says, you need to do this. You actually need to be patient. So, straight off the bat, straight out the gate, as James writes this section, with this kind of proverbial wisdom section, he comes out with this imperative you need to be patient. And here patience is ultimately defined, as we heard in the kids' talk, by what we're all waiting for, whether we realize it or not, and that is the coming of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. This phrase is used twice in this passage in James. The coming of the Lord, what is that? If you, if you are new to Christianity, you're tuning in online, or you're with us in person, we're so glad you're here, and we're so glad you're meeting this phrase, because the coming of the Lord is on the calendar. It's not on my calendar or our calendars. You won't find it on iCal or Google or any other calendar because the Bible shows us, Jesus says, we don't know when it is, but Jesus says there is a day scheduled in by the Father's will in human history where the Lord Jesus will return. He came the first time. If you want a summary of the Old Testament, which is a lot of books, it's a big section of the Bible. Here's a summary of the Old Testament. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. That's a good summary. And a summary of the New Testament could be this. Someone is here. Someone is here. Someone is here. And at the end of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, there is a prophecy. There is more than a prediction. It is a scheduling. It is this. Someone is returning. And his name is Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. He is God himself. The God-man will return. As I said last week, Often when I'm sort of reading or, or watching um, Lord of the Rings, I'm summarising that for our own boys at the moment for their bedtime story. So they get, they get you know, books and, and Bible and now they want to delay going to bed, so they want a story. And so I'm just summarising Lord of the Rings. But what always strikes me about Lord of the Rings is the very first scene when Galadriel narrates. She says, what was known about the ring and the history of Middle Earth, history became legend and legend became myth. And we treat the Bible like that. We just treat it as, well, it's just a, it's, it's like Greek myth or fairy tales, but it's actually not. It's something like Grimm's fairy tales. It's nothing like Greek myth because it's grounded in history. You can find the things in the Bible grounded in archaeology and history, things that are measurable, uh, discoverable, true and tested. You can see them. Christianity is not about leaving your brain at the door. It's actually about thinking and relying and trusting your life on trustworthy things. And here's a trustworthy saying. He is returning, friends. He's coming back. And so James writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. As we read James, it's helpful to know a bit about him. James is actually the half-brother of Jesus. So when Jesus was born to Mary, Christmas time's coming, we remember that, the incarnation Incarnal Latin means God in flesh, God in flesh. The, the miracle that God comes to humanity, into human form, he comes to save us. Jesus is born to Mary and Joseph. And Mary and Joseph have other children as well. In fact, we know that Jesus' brothers and sisters throughout their teenage and adult years you know, had interactions and, and, and we actually meet James, here. he's actually Jesus' half-brother, he's one of Jesus' brothers. He's also a leader at the Church of Jerusalem, and when he writes this letter, he's a friend of Peter who writes, he's heard Jesus say, on repeat throughout the Gospel accounts, I will return. Jesus is telling us he's coming back, and James is just reiterating that. In the New Testament alone, there are 300 references to the return of Christ, Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know the day of the Lord is coming. Peter writes in his letter that we read, our cross-reference passage, he writes this in Second Peter 3, uh, verse 8, that, that we think, well, he's not coming back, and you know, it's legend, uh, sorry, uh, history has become legend, legends become myth. We think he's not coming back, but Peter writes this, but remember this, with God, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So, brothers and sisters, be patient until the coming of the Lord. And James illustrates what this could be like for us by using the patient farmer illustration. The kind of the running joke around here, of course, is what, Russ, you know, uses farming illustrations, farming analogies, because that's my background. But the Bible's full of agricultural illustrations, and here's one of them. So sorry if you're not a farmer, but I think you'll get it. And what I want to show you is it actually applies to your work and your life as well. But James says in verse 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See, have a look at the patient farmer. Look at the farmer. He waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and late rains. Farming is about working and waiting. Of all the things I learnt growing up on the farm, uh, and working for other farmers is, its in many ways, it's hurry up and wait. That's farming. So particularly, uh, I got a job in my out of high school years. I drove a truck and uh, for a farmer. It was a big truck, a lot of fun. Um, but the, the biggest thing about harvest time, and harvest is just around the corner for us, is it's all about hurry up and wait, especially if you're a truck driver. A right? head of drivers, that's an office job. Right, They sit in that header, all they just press a button, it just goes up the row, comes down the row, turn around. I might get on Twitter, you know, like drink my cup of tea or my Coke, whatever I'm doing, kick back and relax, feet up, don't have to touch the pedals. Header, office job. Truck driving, on the other hand, that's different. Hurry up and wait. So what that meant for me was, if you're on the truck, right, you're pulling into the paddock and you're hurling it around, you're finding the auger, you're pulling underneath, Air brakes going, you jump out, you unroll your tarp, you get up, you turn the auger on. Well, often the auger engine is, for some reason, all the engines on the farm is the hardest engine to start. You're trying to get the auger going, get the auger going, the grain's going in, you make sure it's not spilling over the sides, and you've got it not too heavy because the scalies will catch you. And then you, you keep that truck moving forward, and you get the grain in, you roll the tarp back on, then you hurl out of the paddock, you drive 30 Ks of to town, you pull into the silos, and then you wait. You hurry up and wait. And you could be waiting at the silos in a queue of 60 trucks for two or three hours. Farming is hurry up and wait. But gardening is that too. You don't have to be a farmer to get that. With gardening, you've got to plant the seed. And you've got to do it at the right time, what the packet says, right? Because if you don't, then your plants will die. And you've got to hurry up and get some moisture on it. My brother-in-law has sown lawn, and so he said, well, now I've got to really water it every day for so many hours a day or whatnot just to get the lawn going. Just grass, Goodness. You've got to hurry up and, and then you wait. You've got to wait for it to grow. But lots of things in life are like that, aren't they? You've got to hurry up and, and do your work and then you've got to wait for the fruit of that work to produce. And most of all, being a Christian is like that. Making disciples of Jesus Christ is like that. When you open the Bible with people Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3 We're planting the gospel in people's lives In the front of my Bible um, I have lots of things I write to myself To remind myself To keep going, keep persevering Keep doing so with patience And I've written here When you're opening the Bible with people God is at work This is where God works By his word How did God create the universe? Did he use any scaffolding? No. How did he do it? He spoke it into existence. He created the universe by his word. How is God seeing people recreated, reborn and saved, regathered to him? It's by his word. This is how God works. But I tell you, friends, it's slow work. It's a lot of hurry up and wait. It's a lot of meet someone who's interested, read the Bible with them, have coffee with them, preaching week in, week out, preparing Bible studies. It's lots of opening the Bible and then waiting for the gospel seed to do its work in people's lives as people waited for me for many years for the gospel seed to work in my life. Which means we can be like the patient farmer. Wait. And wait for the Lord's return. Last week was Reformation Sunday. So October 31st, on end like Halloween it, but one of the things that we love and remember is uh, in 1517, so just a bit over 500 years ago, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther Jr., you know, Martin Luther King, not him, but Martin Luther, who was a German monk at the time in Germany, um, as German monks often are, German monks are in Germany, um, he, um, he, he grew up Roman Catholic and, and he was like, you know, there's some things in the church need some reforming, like kind of concerned about a few things going on here. And and I'm just paraphrasing a lot of history now, but he basically took his concerns and he nailed it to the notice board in Wittenberg at the university city on on the church door, which is the notice board at the time. Couldn't do it here, break the glass, but he did that. 95 things he wanted debated sparked what's called the Reformation. The Reformation has led to a lot of um, really good thinking and in-depth discovery. It's related to science, lots of things in our world that we often neglect. But Reformation Sunday was last Sunday, October 31st, every year's Reformation Day. Martin Luther talks about how God works patiently by his word. I love this quote. It's a bit long. Let me read it to you. I could read it in a German accent, but I think that would discredit the value of the quote. So just bear with me. These are not my words. These are Martin Luther's words. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank beer at Wittenberg with friends Philip and Amstorf. the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor could ever inflict such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to stir up trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would I have been? Mere fool's play, I did nothing, I let the word do its work. What do you suppose Satan thought when one tries to do the thing by kicking up a row? He sits back in hell and thinks, oh what a fine game the poor fools are up to now. But when we spread the word alone and let it do the work alone, that distresses him. For it is almighty and takes captive the hearts, and when the hearts are captured, the work or oh, the fall itself will fall. See this, friends? We live in a season when we need this. We live in a season where we are so tempted in our impatience to get angry with the government and do our thing and do all sorts of things to stir up trouble. I've read things about putting sand into the gears of government by our actions. I just, I just don't think that's the way it's going to work. I don't think the government cares that much by our actions, to be honest. And by the way, that's not where the power is. It's not where the power is, friends. Brothers and sisters in Christ, where do you believe the power of God is? It's in the word. So let us be people of the word, patiently speaking the word of God, the gospel, and then let the word do its work. Sleep the sleep of the righteous. Drink beer in Wittenberg or Bendigo. Let the word do the work. Of course, if beer is not your thing, grab some cordial, but whatever it is, let the word do its work. See how the patient farmer waits. You also be patient. That imperative's repeated. But here's the question. Like Martin Luther did it. Others seem to be more patient than me. Here's the question that's got to be burning on your mind right now: How? I've tried everything i sat up and listened to the late-night commercials. You know those late-night commercials? Somehow, you know, know, it's like you're on the couch, right? You're sitting on the couch and you you often wonder how you got there. Why am I still on the couch at 1 o'clock in the morning? You're still there and you're you're flicking through the channels and there's late-night commercials and they're so yelly and they're like trying to convince you. You need to buy this product and walk and this gym equipment and does everything and then because it's going to work so much and be so favourable to your life, we'll throw in this chicken cooker. You know you know those late-night commercials, right? Like That's an actual commercial I saw recently. And I think we often treat things like this with the same kind of attitude. Well, if I just buy that thing, get that thing, that right you know, gym equipment, it'll make me patient. Get the right pill, do that. How? How can I have patience? Well, James answers that in the next two verses. Verses eight and nine. You also be patient, and here is how establish your hearts. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. We need to establish our hearts instead. Now this could be translated, strengthen your hearts. It's the same word that Luke uses when Jesus, in Luke's gospel, has done his life and ministry and then all of a sudden turns and heads towards Jerusalem. Knowing he's going to a cross, knowing he's going to die A humiliating death of execution for the sin of the world. Luke writes, he set his face towards Jerusalem. It's the same word. It's a resolution. Because this is a heart problem. The problem with patience is this. It's deeply ingrained in your heart. Why? Because you are deeply fallen. And so am I. We're not made to be this way. God did not design us this way. God made us for the garden and for beauty and glory. And instead, we changed that truth for a lie. The lie was in the garden, God does not love me that much. God does not want goods for me. I I can't trust him. And ever since then, we've been living away from him. And it's caused us to be more and more Unlike him, impatience is one of the symptoms. It's a heart problem. And we know it's a heart problem because what happens with impatience? Who do we blame for my impatience? We blame our circumstances. But particularly we blame other people. Let me be a straight shooter. My impatience is your fault. That's what we often do, isn't it? My impatience is your fault. I'm like this because of you. That's often where our heart tracks. We are so out of sorts because of our sin, or human evil, the Bible uses the word sin to describe human evil, my evil. We're so out of sorts with my wrong, we can't see the problem of impatience. And if we're always saying that my impatience is your fault, we'll never be able to address it. Why? This often happens. If your problems are someone else's fault, then your problems will never be fixed. Why? Because you don't own them. It's not my problem. If it's not my problem that I'm like this, then I can't fix it. But if I can admit wrong, if I could actually humbly admit that I'm wrong, then I can actually address the problems in my life. But if it's your fault, how am I going to fix it because it's your thing? I can't fix you. But if I can admit the impatience is in me, that's when I can start to see it addressed. And that's why James gets to the heart of the issue. God is getting real with us. Establish your hearts. What does that mean? It's the opposite to a short temper. See, impatience is a short temper. Your temper is short. Short fuse, gone. Establish your hearts. Strengthen your hearts for a long temper. To be able to absorb the frustrations you absorb the pain here's a diagnostic of your heart verse 9 James gives a diagnostic how do you go at this do not grumble against one another brothers and sisters there's the diagnostic chart how do you go at not grumbling against one another who wants to, who wants to say that is never my problem Of course, it is my problem, isn't it? It's my problem, it's all our problem. We are so tempted constantly to grumble against one another. James writes, Do not grumble against one another so you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. See, grumbling is a symptom of impatience, and grumbling against one another is in form of judgment. Because when I grumble against you, I'm actually judging you. I'm actually saying, I'm the judge, you're at fault, I'm going to judge you. Grumbling is the most judgy experience a human can have. To be judgy is to grumble, to grumble is to be a judge. And we set ourselves up as judges. We place ourselves in the judgment seat. We claim to have all wisdom and all righteousness. I'm right, I'm wise, you're wrong and you're unwise. And we treat people with contempt and judge them rather than being patient with them. Friends. We are in a season right now, especially we're going to need to be careful we don't grumble against one another, even brothers and sisters in the church. It's such temptation. I think when, when two grumblers get together, it then snowballs because we found someone that agrees with us. Oh, yeah, you'll grumble, i am grumble. Let's grumble together. And we go, rumble, rumble, rumble. And all of a sudden it becomes an imploding volcano of grumbling and there's just lava everywhere. It's such a temptation. But as I said before, here's where we start. Can we start turning grumbles into prayers for people? Instead of grumbling about people, could you turn that, stop yourself and go, actually, is grumbling going to work at all? Like, is it going to fix anything? Is it going to change anything? Does grumbling change anything at all? Negative, ghostwriter doesn't change a single thing. Grumbling changes nothing. Prayer changes everything. Instead of grumbling about something or a person, pray about a person or something. Often when we're under pressure, we lash out in anger. We say words we wish we could take back. We judge people rather than look at them the way Jesus does. How does Jesus look at people? Does Jesus walk around grumbling about them? No, he looks at them with compassion. Here's the warning, friends. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, James writes, so you may not be judged. Here's the warning. The way you judge someone, the way you measure someone, will be the way that you are measured. The measure you use will be the same measure for you. Now, of course, we find this hard, don't we? Who doesn't find this hard? I find this like near impossible. I I almost want to give up now, except I know the gospel is coming. But just for a moment, James says, he writes, take a look at the prophets. Just look at the prophets. Verses 10 to 11. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed to remain steadfast. You've heard the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. Take the prophets. Um, If we were going to take the prophets, we'd be here a long morning. So I'm just going to take a sample. Here's a sample of some famous prophets. So people even, even if you've never read the Bible much, you may have heard of them. Here's the first one. Go back way back in time. One of the first prophets, right? Um, Noah. So there was a Russell Crowe movie. I'm Noah, Russell Crowe, gladiator. You know, that movie was terrible. Now, that impression was terrible. My name is Russell, too, you know, whatever. Um, the movie was terrible because it wasn't based on the Bible. Right? It was apocryphal at best. But if you actually go and read Noah's story in the Bible, and I encourage you, go and read Noah in Genesis. Here is a guy in a society that is spinning out of control with wickedness, awful people are doing awful things to one another. And God says to him, "I want you to build a boat." And Noah's like, uh, "Where's the water? I want you to build a boat, a big ark." And whoever trusts in me, trusts in the ark, gets in the ark. Go and preach that. Go and preach, they need to turn to me, trust in me, get in the ark, and be saved from the judgment of a flood to come. Do you know how long it took Noah to build that ark? 120 years. So Noah preached for at least, scholars estimate, 75 years. He may have preached for the full 120, like he's building and preaching and building and preaching. Talk about hurry up and wait. He preaches for a lifetime. How many converts did Noah see? Aside from his family that get on the ark. Zero. That's patience. Jeremiah, take another prophet. Uh, It's often called the weeping prophet because he has a pretty hard life. He's told to preach the gospel to a really uh, terribly disobedient and wicked Israel. Like his own people, right? God's people, supposedly. They throw him in a cistern, like a big cabin, a big toilet in the ground. They throw him in the toilet and in, in, in he's in the mud or the poo, whatever it is. And they, in fact, one of his friends is worried he's going to sink into it and die. So they pull him out. And, and then, then they put him in the prison and then they send him off to Egypt where he doesn't even want to go against his own will where he dies. They call him the weeping prophet. How many converts did Jeremiah see? Two. Well, that's a bit better than Noah, isn't it? Take Elijah. Elijah, Mount Carmel, great victory, prophets of Baal, should make it into a movie, be fantastic, right? Get Hugh Jackman or someone to do it. And then after that moment, Jezebel says, Queen Jezebel says, I'm going to get you. One person wants to get him and he just falls down in the heap. I want to die. God has to send an angel. Have some food, have some water, have some sleep, get up. It's going to be okay. And then think of Moses. What is the ministry of Moses? Again, made into movies. Moses, basically, if you want to summarize his ministry, is it's it's serving a grumbling people. Like he, he's sent by God to go and see God's people Israel rescued out of slavery in Egypt and taken to the promised land, and he says, "Ah, God, I don't wanna. And God's like, oh, y- y- I'm gonna give you I'm going to, all the power in you. No, I can't. I can't. I'm not a good preacher. I'm not a good speaker. And guys, like, all right, Aaron will be the preacher. You'll be the leader. Go and do it. And he's like, all right. Goes and takes the people out of Egypt, wandering in the wilderness for forty years because they grumble, grumble, grumble the whole time. They just whinge the whole time. And eventually Moses has just lost patience and he's had it. A couple of times actually, but one particular time they're whinging, we've got no water, we just want to get back to Egypt. We had lots there, even though they were slaves and they were beaten up, but we had so much. And what does Moses do? Fine! He gets his stick, he strikes a rock and water comes out. There's your water! feels like you're talking to a four-year-old who won't go to sleep at night because he needs his bottle of, you know. They're having a tantrum. Moses loses patience. He has some patience, but he loses it. What is James saying? When you look at the prophets, then look at Job. You've heard of the steadmasters of Job. Of course, we have because we were in the book of Job. Job initially, when he suffers terribly, great book for sinners and sufferers, 42 chapters, we did eight sermons in that book, and we saw the suffering that Job went through. Initially, he seems okay, but at the end, he is very grumbly. What's James' point? It's not take a look at the prophets and stay there. It's look at the prophets and see how they could possibly persevere when they lose patience, too, like you. And how do they do it? Look now at the purpose of the Lord. Look at the Lord who loved them. Look at the Lord who loves you. And what is the purpose of the Lord? James writes it right there. In verse 11, You have seen the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. What is it? How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's the purpose of the Lord. The Lord is not grumbly. He's not frustrated with you. He's compassionate and merciful towards you, even as you're grumbly and frustrated. Isn't that incredible? It's called amazing grace. We sing songs about it. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. You've seen the purpose of the Lord, friends. We all need patience. I need patience. Patience to relate to one another with grace and not grumbling. We often fail. Our impatience does see us implode and then explode. We grumble, and that grumbling is sin. We say that we are the judge. We don't love God as we should. We don't love others as we could. We act like we're the judge. We we, we sit in the place of God himself. We end up being impatient and angry, and we sit over judgment over others. Friends, if we continue in that way, we deserve to be judged for that. It is disordered, it is a disobedient way to live, and it's not how God has designed us. We need to be patient, but friends, the imperative is not enough. We can't do it. We fail at patience. Even the prophets had their moments, they were not perfect, but taking a look at the prophets help us now to gaze at God. Look at the prophets. But now gaze at God. Don't let your gaze move from him. For when you gaze at God, you see the good news, the gospel of perfect patience. Jesus changes everything. Earlier when James writes, he says something that I think is a little bit strange when you think about it. He says, behold, the judge is standing at the door. You have to kind of wonder when you read that, don't you? The judge is standing at the door. Here's what I wonder. Why is he standing at the door? Why not come on in? How long have you been standing there for, Jesus? Why not come on in? Why is he standing? What's he waiting for? But we see in 2 Peter the purpose of the Lord, don't we? He's standing at the door. He hasn't come yet. Because he 's compassionate and merciful with us, he wants us to grow in patience, but more than that he wants us to rely on him, to trust in him, to turn to him. We read this in in second Peter, so you 've only got to turn over again it's just a couple of books over in second Peter chapter three, verses eight and nine, but do not overlook second Peter. Chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is what? He is patient. With who? Look at those words. He is patient towards you. Towards you. God is getting personal with you. Right now. The Lord could come at any moment, but why is he waiting? Why is he standing at the door and not coming in yet? Because he wants you to come to him. For you to trust in him. The Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that you should perish, but that you should reach repentance. The patience of God himself has come to us. And where do we see that? At the cross, where Jesus came the first time. See, we put ourselves in the judgment seat, but get this, here's the good news, here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We, where we put ourselves in the judgment seat, it's him who was sitting on the judgment seat, leaves the throne of heaven, comes down to earth as a humble human, and then in humiliation... He goes to the cross. The judge gets judged. The judge himself is judged to death on a cross instead of you, instead of me. He goes there for my sin, your sin. The judge gets judged. He willingly does it. Friends, this is the moment of your life. Everything has been working by God's background, working in his word. Everything is working. He's been patiently working to see you meet Jesus now. For you online or you in person to meet him now. God is getting personal with you. He doesn't want you to perish. Christ is saying to you now, come. Come. The Lord is saying to you, it's time to turn to me. Don't run away. Don't ruin your life into judgment and hell. Instead, turn from your sin and trust in me. He's good and gracious and patient towards you. You'll hear in our next step news. um, how you can follow that up further if you want. Come to dinner where there's a group of us we are exploring Christ or I'll shout you your favorite beverage and we'll open the Bible and we'll meet Jesus and read through and see what he says about himself and who he is and Well, we'll let the word do the work. For us who belong to Christ, though, Peter further writes in chapter 3, verse 11, since all these things are thus bit as old, what sort of people ought we be? And he says we ought to live lives of godliness and holiness, waiting for and hastening the day of the Lord. Get it? Hurry up and wait. Our lives now are hurry up and wait which means, I think, three things for us. We have an opportunity now. Let's dream together. Let's pray together. Three things. Firstly, when we feel under pressure, when our patience is worn thin, can I encourage you, look to the Lord's patience. When you feel impatient with people, be that the government, church, leaders, every time you feel impatient and you feel it welling up, Can I encourage you right now, from now on? Actually, remember how patient the Lord is with me. Secondly, let go of the life of grumbling. Does it do you any good? The Lord says to Cain, do you do well to be angry? Are you going okay, Cain? The Lord is saying to the grumbler, do you do well to be a grumbling right now? Is it it, it making your life better? Do you feel better at the end? No, let go of that life. And thirdly, rely on the Word of God to do the work. And pray that that will be the heart of our culture of reforming church life. Friends, look to Jesus. Think about Jesus. At the end of Luke's Gospel, Jesus is on the cross and he's dying in excruciating, humiliating pain not just because of the nails, but because he's receiving the wrath of God against your sin that you and I deserve, he takes that wrath, that anger. And then after everything that's been done to him, even by, dare I say it, the government, after everything that's done to him by the authorities and the government, everything that's done to him, all the dishonesty, the, the kangaroo court, the way he's treated, the humiliation, what does Jesus say on that cross about the people who's doing all that to him? What does he say? He prays. And you remember what he prays? He prays this in Luke twenty-three: "Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do." In other words, yes, they're wrong. I'm not saying you know, that they're doing all things. He says they're wrong, but notice this. Notice the difference to the way we treat people. See, Jesus sees sin and says it's wrong, but he asks in prayer for forgiveness instead of giving them a tongue lashing because of their guilt, he doesn't go, "Ah, oh, you're bad, terrible government people, you're horrible, you're evil, you know, dictators. He doesn't do that. He doesn't give them a tongue lashing. He asks in prayer for their forgiveness. If the Lord himself can say that of the authorities executing him, on what grounds can we speak of others, even authorities, without a word of prayer asking for their forgiveness? I hear so much talk about the way we talk about our leaders and I hear from God's people very little prayer. We have an opportunity that is supernaturally beyond this world. It's the gospel that changes everything, even the way we talk in a pandemic. See, friends, when you believe the gospel and you see God's gracious patience towards you, You can't be impatient and angry all the time with others. Instead, you patiently pray for others. And like the patient farmer, you wait for the precious fruit. Let's pray. Let's pray, friends. Our Father in heaven, there are many of us in this room or tuning in online who are struggling with impatience this season. And so we pray for patience. We're asking for the patience of Christ, by the Spirit of Christ, that we would believe upon the gospel of Christ's patience towards us and that we would grow by grace in that patience towards others. Make us more like Christ, saved and shaped by him. Whatever happens as we wait for his return, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.